0: good morning morning. morning. we were uh, some of us i think there's a at least one person here was at a uh, conference uh, it was a nine marks conference and and uh the guy got up and said you know good morning or hello or something and everybody answered him back like you just did and he was like whoa he says that was neat because i guess they don't do that back east he's from washington dc and he's like, that was, that was kind of powerful, he said. <laughs> and so he did it again. He says, good morning. And they all said, good morning. He was impressed with that. I don't, I don't know. It's not impressive to us. It's like, yeah, that's normal. Um, so your pastor occasionally gives you a um, little information about a particular book, I guess, that's usually on your table. And... Um, So uh, this book isn't on your table, but uh, if you're interested in it, they they can get it. It's called Think by John Piper, and a lot of the thoughts that I'm going to be discussing here come from this because his book is kind of based on verse 7 of what we just read um, about Paul telling Timothy to think. Um, I wanted to read just a quick little quote in here that I thought was really good, because ta- it's talking about thinking, and I really liked, I liked your little sign there, No, apply, proclaim, and, and know is kind of what we're going to focus on somewhat this morning as Paul commands Timothy to think, but here's a little section of this book that I would really highly recommend to you. Uh, the main reason that thinking and loving are connected is that we cannot love God without knowing God. And the way we know God is by the Spirit-enabled use of our minds. So, to love God with all your mind means engaging all your powers of thought to know God as fully as possible in order to treasure Him for all He's worth. God is not honored by groundless love. In fact, there is no such thing. If we do not know anything about God, there is nothing in our mind to awaken love. If love does not come from knowing God there's no point calling it love for God. There may be some vague attraction in our heart and some unfocused gratitude in our soul, but if they do not arise from knowing God, they are not love. So this is a really good book. He, he um, goes through what thinking is and, and uh, how reading uh, helps thinking and uh, how faith comes through thinking and then why we need to think is he points to the fact that we need to think because we need to love God. Because it says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's a good book. Let's turn to Second uh, Timothy. And uh, let me pray, and then we'll, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the flow of Second Timothy, then we'll get into our text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We know that we need your spirit. We need your spirit to illuminate our minds in order that we would see Christ and that he would be glorified and that you would lift him up in such a way that we could see him and honor him and love him. Cause our minds to think your thoughts after you this morning. That we would truly glorify you and that we would see the glory of Christ and that we would worship him. That this would be a time of worship and that your word would would ride the spirit, the word would ride upon your spirit into our souls. That we would be changed by your word, that we would be transformed by your word this morning. We we need you to do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, anybody here own a Kindle? You guys own Kindles, right? I was looking up what Kindle meant, you know, where they came up with the name Kindle. Kindle means to set a light, to start to burn, or to become bright. The root word is from the word kindle, K-Y-N-D-I-L-L, which was used to mean candle. And the roots of the word go deep into literature and all the way back to Voltaire, who said, the instruction we find in books is like fire. We fetch it from our neighbors, kindle it at home, and communicate it to others, and it becomes the property of all. Isn't that interesting? Paul wants to kindle Timothy's faith. He wants Timothy to be on fire for Christ. I wanna be on fire for Christ. I want you to be on fire for Christ. And the way this happens is through our mind. See, we kindle our heart through what we think. That's why in Second Timothy, Paul says in verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame. That could be translated, maybe in some of your versions it is, translated kindle the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So before we actually jump into our text, I want to ask some questions with regard to what Paul is trying to do here for Timothy because that's what he's also trying to do for us. So what does Paul use to stir up Timothy? If you notice, he uses the past of Timothy. He reminds Timothy and is remembering things along with Timothy about his upbringing, about his past. He is stirring up his memory and his thinking about the fact that, Timothy, you have a spiritual heritage. Don't waste your spiritual heritage. Maybe some of you have parents who were saved and led you to Christ, or grandparents. Well, that's was Timothy's case. And so Paul is telling Timothy, people have invested in you, Timothy. They have given you the gospel. Therefore, Timothy, stir up your gift. Remember the people who have taught you, Timothy. And then in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, It says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. He's given him theology. See, theology is very practical because what it does is it informs you about what God's big plan is. And as Paul here is facing the last days of his life, he looks back to eternity past, And he recognizes that God had a plan all the way along. And God's plan isn't a plan B. It was the plan all the way along. That the promise was made to Christ to have a people of his own possession, to be made after him. And Paul looks forward to the fact that God would make this come about in Christ and that he abolished death. And so in in Paul's mind, as he's about to die, he looks at the big plan of God and he informs Timothy's mind with this kind of theology. This is the way we need to think in order to remain stable in unstable times. And that's what Timothy is in here. He is in very unstable times. So why does Paul command Timothy to think? Well, <laughs> that's what mature believers do. They think about the scripture, the way you become mature is to think about what God says. See, according to Paul, believers are to be mature in their thinking, 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Mature thinking, biblical thinking, focuses not on the past, but on the person of Christ. Timothy is to be sober-minded, to gird up his thoughts, and to think on Christ. He wants Timothy to be consumed with this person. See, if you wanna be a fruitful Christian, what do you do? You meditate on the word of God, right? Psalm one, Joshua one eight. You meditate on the scripture and that's how maturity happens. The Bible tells us exactly what to think think on these things. Whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is holy, right? And what that list sums up is the person of Christ. We're to think about Christ. Worship is directly related to what you know about God. How do you worship apart from knowing who you're worshiping? If I don't understand Christ I can't want Christ if I don't know what scripture says I can't desire its promises I asked my daughter do you want a canis <laughs> she looked at me like I'm some kind of nut canis is latin for dog but she didn't know that how can you want something when you don't know or understand what it is Pastor friend of mine asked me, or didn't ask me. He made a statement. He said, "He said, uh, my people, they don't need they don't need theology. They need Jesus. But that's like saying, I want to be saved, but I don't want to know my Savior. That's like saying, I don't need Jesus. I just need my Bible. Or I, I don't need a wife." I just need a marriage. doesn't make sense, right? You, if you want Christ, you want to know Christ. If you want to be changed, you need to think. You need to think on Christ. So what does thinking do? Thinking serves your heart. It fuels your heart. It fuels your affections. See, if you're just thrilled about this name Jesus, and you don't want to know any more about them, that's called emotionalism. And a lot of churches get into that. It's just all emotion. I just want to experience. But then the other side is if if we put aside the heart, we fall into intellectualism. We need to understand that our mind is to serve our heart, it is the fuel for our passions. So, if you want to be on fire for Christ, if you want to burn for him, the way you do it is by knowing who he is and by discovering more about him. How much does a man know about a woman before he marries her and how much does he know about that woman after he marries her? The longer you're married, the more reasons you have to love the person you're married to. The longer you're a Christian, the more reasons you have to worship Christ. Drive and desire begin in the mind. That's the way we were made. Psalm 119.73 says this, your hands made me and fashioned me. Now get this. Give me understanding that I may learn your commands. See, God made you in order that he could give you understanding, in order that you would learn. Paul wants to invigorate Timothy's heart, and the way he's gonna do it is he's gonna do it through his mind. That's why he sends him a letter, not a music video, not a television program, right? Television programs and movie video, music videos, you know what they do? They cause you to feel And at the same time, they fool you to think that you're thinking when you're not. You're simply reacting. He gave Timothy something to read. He gave something to read, something to read not just once. Think about this. Paul's dead possibly when he gets this letter, right? When Timothy receives the letter, he may have already heard that Paul was dead, right? Possible, isn't it? You think he just read this letter once? Or you think he read it over and over and over. And so should we. Turn to Psalm 39.3. Then we'll turn back to 2 Timothy. Psalms 39.3. I just want you to look at this verse because this is, this is um, what I'm building the idea that Paul is feeding Timothy's mind on. This verse really illustrates that principle. See, Paul understood this Principle. It says, My heart became hot within me. Well, well, how did that happen? As I mused, as I thought, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. See, it's as you think about something. And, and in reality, the things you really long for and desire are the things that you've been thinking about. Right? I mean, I was reading, I don't know if it was a blog or something, some lady was saying she's trying to lose weight, but if she's trying to lose weight, all she's thinking about is what the foods are. And she says the more she thinks about the food, the harder it becomes to lose weight. And it's a vicious little circle because your thoughts fuel your heart. As I mused, the fire burned. See, thinking on Christ produces endurance. Hebrews 12.3 says this, For consider Jesus, who had endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Well, why am I to consider Jesus? Why am I to think about Jesus? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why do you need to think about the Bible? Why do you need to set your mind on Scripture? So you will not grow weary and lose heart. Paul wants Timothy to lay aside every hindrance and the things that entangle in order that he would run the race of endurance. He must have his eyes fixed on Christ. We must have our minds set on the glories of Christ. You know what this book is full of? This book is full of the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That's what it's full of. Every paragraph will show you some excellency of Christ that's what it's for this is a book about a person it's not a book of a bunch of rules and you don't want to hear a bunch of rules on Sunday you want to hear about a person and that's what I want us to think about I want us to think about Christ so when I say I want well, let me let me let me give you some something to do this week okay here's what I want you to do I would like you to pick three verses and think about them every morning for a week. I want you to ask questions and pound on that text and ask God to help you understand it. You know what we tend to do? We tend to read a text and we don't understand it, so we go to a commentary we call the pastor. What does this mean? You have the author residing in you who wrote this. Ask God what he wants you to see from the text. He will meet you there. Where do you meet God but in his word? If you don't understand it, ask him. He is more interested in revealing it to you than you are in even asking. He has lives and blood have been spilt over to preserve this for you and for me. So this week, I'd like you to consider what Paul says. So look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to show you five things from this text. And if you're taking notes, these are the five points. I want you to consider the grace given for power, the grace given for production, the grace given for perseverance, the grace given for perception, and finally, grace personified. Grace given for power, grace given for production, grace given for perseverance, grace given for perception, and grace personified. First, grace for power. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul want Timothy to be strengthened? Why does he want Timothy to become strong? Paul is telling Timothy to be strong because he is in the minority, just as we are. Our nation is no longer a Christian nation. And here we see Timothy... Facing the minority. He is the minority. And the majority are those who put Paul in prison. He warns Timothy of the temptation of being ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 8. He tells Timothy difficult times will come. Chapter 3, verse 1. He explains that people will turn to myths from the truth. That imposters will increase and grow worse that teachers will deceive and be more deceiving and become deceived. People will be self-consumed, oppose the gospel, deny the power of God. They will be corrupt in their thinking and they will be disqualified from the faith. This is why Timothy is told to be strengthened because all around him people are being deceived and they're deceiving and they're imposters and people are turning to myths. And then and look, at, look at chapter one, verse 15 you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. See, this is the context that that Timothy needs to be strengthened and that we need to be strengthened. Well, how is Paul going to strengthen Timothy? And why does he want strength for Timothy? How can he expect strength for Timothy? Because it says here, you then, my child. See, as a father, you know things that have happened to you that you would pass on to your children. And Paul here, being the spiritual father of Timothy, says, you know what, Timothy? God has given me grace. God has given me strength, Timothy, and that strength has come through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of our Lord overflowed to me, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy. See, because Paul has experienced great grace and power, he knows that Timothy can as well. And so he is longing for his son to experience the power of Christ that he's experienced. Paul says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord rescued me from every evil deed. See, have you ever asked God, For more grace than you've ever had. Have you ever been so bold to say, you know what, I know you've given me all kinds of grace, but I want more than I've ever had. That glorifies him. Because it just shows that it ain't about what you're doing that he gives you the grace. That's why it's grace. He will strengthen you, not because you've been obedient. He will strengthen you by grace. This is his grace. Think about it. How many many would raise their hand and say, I'm still saved because I've been faithful? Right? Why do you think you've been preserved all these years? It's grace. It's entirely grace. We, we We are always going astray. But it's the grace that strengthens us, that keeps us attached, keeps us in Christ. See, where does this strength come from? It comes from God. And it wasn't given to us because of something we've done. That's why in chapter one, he says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Think about that for a minute. Eternity past, God determined to show you grace this morning. And every day leading up to this morning, in eternity past, he determined to show you this grace. Before you did anything, he determined to show you grace. Before you could contribute anything to him, he determined to give you grace and to strengthen you. This is all about him. He does this for you. It's because he's gracious. It's because he's gracious. Well, what kind of strength, what kind of power are we discussing here? Well, in verse 9 of chapter 2, it's power that cannot be bound. In Romans 12, it's power that actually transforms you. Be transformed. Well, how? By the renewing of your mind. It's a power that equips. In chapter 3, verse 15 to 17, it's power to equip, transform, and make Timothy wise. It's power that conquers death. It's death-defying death defying power. Maybe you maybe someone in your life is dying. Maybe someone in your life has cancer. Maybe you're facing that. And Paul here, he's facing that and he looks back and he says, "You know what? It's all grace. It is all grace because no matter what, God had a plan. No matter what was going to happen, he was going to give us grace and no matter what was going to happen, he was going to destroy death. And the way he did it is through Jesus Christ to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See Christ is your strength. Death, you will never face it. You will never face death if you have put faith in Jesus Christ. You will, from one moment, right now, if you were to die this minute in Christ, you would go from looking at me to immediately looking at Christ. There is no separation now. And that's what death is, right? Death is separation. Soul from body. Soul from God body and soul from God in eternal death. There's no more death. This is an inhuman power. This is a supernatural power. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. The power and the grace that Christ has given is the Spirit of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the gospel. Guard the gospel by the Holy Spirit. This is the power that you have. This is the strength that you have that same spirit that caused the existence of a body for christ in the womb of mary that was jesus's power all through his ministry and that 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 was with him even in his death do you know the spirit was with christ as he died on the cross listen to this this is hebrews 9 13 and 14 for, it is the blood of bull, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see? The Holy Spirit was the strength of the fully human and fully God, man, Jesus Christ, on that cross. So if the Spirit was with Christ in death and the Spirit is with Paul in death, Paul wants Timothy to recognize that this, what you've been given, Timothy, is plenty. It's everything you need, Timothy. You have everything you need to endure because you have the Spirit of God. It's the power to face death with conviction and purpose. So secondly, grace for production. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Now, when it says entrust to faithful men, men doesn't need to be men. It's not masculine. It's the word for a human being. So while it can apply to men, it can also apply to women. In other words, women are to disciple women, <laughs> right? Right? We don't want to get away from this. This is is the fact that, this is the the great commission in an epistle, right? You're to pass on what you've learned. This teaches discipleship. What you have here is four generations of discipleship. Notice, Jesus to Paul, right? Paul to Timothy. Timothy to... uh, Presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful, men, to faithful men. And then those faithful men teach others, right? So what you have here is, huh, this is apostolic succession, but it's not Catholic, <laughs> right? See, Roman Catholics teach apostolic succession in the terms of laying on of hands and that the Pope is somehow connected to Peter. But that's not what we follow. We follow this kind of apostolic succession. What this is, is what you're doing and I'm doing and what Paul is telling Timothy to do is to pass on the message. It's the message that we're to pass on, not some sort of mysterious thing or some sort of ecclesiastical rite. It's the gospel. So how did Paul, how did Paul receive the gospel? How did he first get it in order to give it to Timothy. Well, Paul's an exception because what Paul was, Paul was an apostle. There's no apostles alive today. Paul received what he received through direct revelation. He didn't learn it. There's nothing that we really haven't learned, but Paul did not learn Christ that's why he's different than anybody alive today see paul was given it by direct revelation of god galatians 1:11 says i didn't learn it but i received it through a revelation why does this matter because paul's authority here is crucial because he's about to tell Timothy, you need to think on what I write then the Lord will give you understanding. How many of you could write a letter and tell the person, pray over what I write and the Lord will give you understanding? That's huge arrogance if Paul doesn't really have the authority. See, when Paul was made an apostle, he says this. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I didn't need to check with the guys who spent three and a half years with Jesus when Jesus came to me and gave me this revelation. Do you see how authoritative this letter is? This letter did not come through Paul learning something. This letter came through a direct revelation to Paul that he didn't even need to check with those who were with Jesus. See, Paul's revelation was not subject to man's interpretation. And it is this revelation in Scripture given to Timothy that Timothy is to pass on. It is the revelation of Jesus. He is to pass on what he has been entrusted. What does it mean to entrust? what does it mean to be entrusted with something because you right now you have the gospel it has been entrusted to you but what's your relationship to being to be having a deposit or something right when you go to the bank you put money in the bank you give it to the teller what do you hope they're going to do right you don't want them messing with it <laughs> you don't want them taking from it and you don't want them putting anything more in well, maybe you want to put more in, but you shouldn't. <laughs> so otherwise you don't know what you really had. They're tainting it, and you don't want that. So to entrust here, St. Vincent said this. He says, "What is meant by deposit? That which is committed to, not invented by us. That's the gospel, huh? It's committed to us, but it isn't invented by us. That which you have received, not what you have devised. Not a thing of intelligence but of learning. Not of private assumption, but of public tradition. That's why he says here, in the presence of many witnesses, there is no secret key to the Christian life. Paul, what Paul taught Timothy, look at your text, what Paul taught Timothy, he taught him in the presence of many witnesses. This is a public message. This is to be public. We are to publicly proclaim the gospel. There's no secret key to the Christian life. This is something that is brought to me, not brought forth from me. I am not the author, I am simply the keeper. I am not the leader, I am the follower. That is why you exist as a church and not at the Roman Catholic Church. See, the Roman Catholic Church says they came up with this, that they've put this together. But you know what we would say? This put us together. The reason you sit in your chair here this morning is because you have submitted to what this says. This determines us. We don't determine this. This judges us. We don't judge this. And this is what we're to pass on. This is what we're to disciple others with. This is what we're to teach others. We're to teach others what Paul has taught us. There is no way that anybody on planet Earth will ever know Jesus Christ apart from the writing of the apostles. This is it. This is the only way you will ever know Christ is through the apostolic writing of the scriptures. And this is what Timothy is to pass on. We're not to mess with the message or simply to convey the message. So, the grace of Christ provides strength, And the grace of Christ provides, produces other believers. Third, the grace for perseverance. So Paul now gives you three illustrations, three metaphors. Now I'm going to sum up these metaphors in a couple ways so that they're a little clearer in your mind. And if you wanted three verses to think about this week, here's some great three verses because I've been thinking about these probably for three weeks now and I'm still getting stuff out of them. Because it's it's right here in this context that as Paul finishes those three metaphors, what does he say in verse seven? Think over what I say, right? So here's some things to think about. And what, what we're to do is we're to look at these metaphors and apply them to how I can live out the Christian life in the midst of understanding what these metaphors are. So the first metaphor of the soldier is a metaphor of self-sacrifice. The second metaphor is a metaphor of self-discipline with the athlete. And the third metaphor is a metaphor of self-denial. So he says in the first one, he says, Share in suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Well, I was looking for a good illustration of what entangled means. Maybe you heard about this. On Thursday, April 12th, in Cartagena, Colombia, 11 Secret Service agents were on the ground to provide protection when President Obama flew in the next day. On Friday, April 13th, these 11 agents were placed on leave after they and five US military service members working with them were discovered to to have been cohabitating with Colombian prostitutes. This is getting entangled when you have a duty. We are not to be entangled. doesn't mean that you're not to have other things to be doing. It means that you get entangled in such a way that it damages your walk with Christ. It damages your ability to please the one who recruited you. Notice the verse. No soldier gets entangled in civilian's affairs. Why? Because his aim is to please the one who's enlisted him. Who enlisted us? Christ. Christ is the one who's enlisted us. Now, this whole idea of being distracted is in movies even, right? I don't know how many of you have heard of Kelly's Heroes with Clint Eastwood. World War II, soldiers go AWOL to rob a bank. The Battle of the Bulge with Telly Savalas, he's got a a job on the side. This is not what we're to have when we're committed to Christ. It doesn't mean we aren't to have jobs. Okay, let's not go there. We're not to be entangled. We're not to be distracted from Christ in the things that we're doing. So let's think for a minute about a soldier. I was, I was, at, a, I was at, yesterday we was at a, a marriage conference. At, they were having a marriage conference at our church. And uh, I was still kind of thinking through these, these illustrations, right? And, and in, the, in, the, in Ephesians, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? And laid his life down for her, right? What's a soldier to do? A soldier isn't a soldier for himself. He's a soldier who lays his life down for other people. I mean, I didn't get that from a commentary. I'm just saying, you can think about Scripture and pray and let it be going in your mind. Let it be always there and asking questions of it. Questions and questions and questions. What does this mean? That's one of the first things I did when I got to this passage. I just kept asking, what do you mean strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus? What does that mean? We need to ask questions of scripture. We need to be thinking about it because you have the resident truth teacher in you who can open your insight to things and give you insight. Because let me tell you, When you just read something and then you read a commentary, you are so missing out. And the reason I say you're missing out is because you're getting maybe some rich truth. But you can get rich truth by reading it and praying and waiting on God. Nothing wrong with commentaries, But you have the Holy Spirit in you who can say things to you about a text that no commentator could ever say to you. And it's wonderful when he does. Because you'll see, you'll connect things in Scripture that no scholar's ever thought of. And it's not that it's wrong, and and if it's a little bizarre, then, then maybe you need to check with other scholars. But you need to be coming to have a personal relationship with the one who wrote this, and the one who wants you to read this. And the way you do that is you sit, and you talk with him, and you think about what he tells you. How much time do you spend thinking about your wife? How much time do you spend thinking about your job? How much time do you spend thinking about your kids? And you could tell me all kinds of things about those. How much time do you spend thinking about the letter that God has written you? What, are the, what is another way that this shows that we can think of being a soldier in the Christian life? Well, a soldier is a soldier for the benefit of others and maybe to preserve the freedom of his country, right? I mean, that would be a reason that somebody joins the military is is to free others, right? Look at chapter two. You're in chapter two. Look at chapter two, verse 24. It says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to teach, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If you're a soldier, your job as a Christian soldier is to free the POWs. Who are the POWs? Your loved ones who are captured in the snare of the devil who cannot free themselves. Use the sword of the Spirit, right? Use the sword of the Spirit. And it says, um, take up the sword of the Spirit in prayer. See, your weapon is this word, and prayer is your communication to headquarters. And the way you free people is in the most unusual way, isn't it? Because he says here, with gentleness. Have you ever noticed that it says, fight the good fight of faith, but the word that comes after or before, I'm not sure, but it's the word gentleness. Have you ever noticed that? that? That fighting in the Christian life is to be a gentle act. That's hard to think that way, isn't it? Because we think of a fighter, we think of UFC or, you know, some violent act. This is amazing because what you're doing when you're making war against Satan, against darkness, is you're doing it in a gentle way because, (laughs) this is so fascinating, because what you realize is that if somebody does change, it wasn't because you were harsh with them. It wasn't because you twisted their arm. It It was... It was, they may come to their senses but God grants repentance. See, you don't need to win an argument. You need to be gentle, correcting those who oppose, and that God would grant repentance. That's what the Christian soldier is waiting for. And his means by doing so is gentleness. You're to be gentle, freeing those who have been ensnared by the devil. We're to serve in such a way to please Christ who is our recruiter. We're to stri- strategically live in order to gently correct the opponents of the faith in order to free them from the snare of the devil. See, the battle is for the, is for the mind, right? In Second Corinthians, you don't need to turn there, I'll just... Kind of give a little quick summary of it. 2 Corinthians 10. People today are trapped in ideological fortresses. What I mean by that is that they think of works righteousness, right? They think that their, their religion will save them. They, they think of, you know, um, what's that with Tom Cruise? What's he into? Scientology, right? These are fortresses because the people firmly believe these. And the only way to break into these fortresses is not through physical weapons, but through the gospel. Though we live in a physical world and have physical bodies, we are not waging war physically. Our weapons are not physical, but supernatural and capable of destroying Scientology, Mormonism, Roman Catholic theology. These are spiritual death camps, where if we're not breaking them out, they're going to die within them. We destroy arguments and every arrogant opinion raised up against the kingdom and the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. So, that's the metaphor of the soldier. Now the metaphor of the athlete, metaphor of self-discipline. This is illustrated really well when (laughs) no matter how good a boxer you are, no matter how popular you are, you can't bite the other guy's ear and expect to win. Right? I don't know if you know about that, but that's, that's the boxer he bit another guy's ear to, in order to frustrate him or somehow win. And he got disqualified. And the seven-time Tour de France champion Lance Armstrong could be stripped of his titles if found guilty of taking performance-hancing drugs. He has been disqualified from the upcoming Iron Man. See, We've got to play according to the rules. We've got we to gotta please the one who's enlisted us and we must stay close to what he's revealed as to what we must do. We must hold to the head. That's what it says in Colossians. He says the, the, one is, the one who's disqualified is the one who doesn't hold to the head. Listen to this. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up in reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. See, Christ is the person and the standard we're to hold to. That's what we're to be thinking about. We're thinking about what he wants. We're thinking his thoughts after him. We don't want to be disqualified and the way that we keep from being disqualified is by holding to Christ. You need to leave this church if Christ is not preached every Sunday. Maybe that's why you left a number of your churches because that's what you and I need to hear. We need to hear how he saves us, how he keeps us saved, how he gives us understanding, how he saves us, how he sanctifies us. We need to see Christ in doing these things for us because People aren't attracted to us because we're strong, self-disciplined people. We don't want them attracted to us for that reason. We want them attracted to Christ, see? He is the ideal soldier, ideal athlete, and the hard-working farmer. We're going to see that in a minute. So finally, the hard-working farmer ought to have the first share of his crops. Notice that these first two, these first two uh, metaphors have some sort of glory to them, right? I mean, heroes come back from war and everybody's thankful for their service or should be. And then the athlete, you know, he's performing in front of a number of people. Where's the applause for this guy? Where's the applause for the hard working farmer? There's no applause here. But there is a reward. He is the first to have a share of his crops. But notice that, Timothy, you're to be working hard whether anybody sees you do it or not, right? You're to be hard-working, Timothy. You're to labor to the point of exhaustion. You're to labor to the point of being tired. You know, I was curious about this word farmer, right? So I looked up farmer, and um, the parable of the tenants, you know when the... When the when, um, Jesus tells this parable of a man who had land and what he did was he set up farming around, right? And then he, then he had tenants be in charge. That word tenant is farmer. So he put farmers in charge of his land. And then he goes off to another country, right? You remember the story. And he sends back servants to collect and they kill the servants. And then he sends back his son and they kill the son. And then Jesus, in the midst of the parable, turns to the Pharisees and says, so what is that guy gonna do to those tenant farmers, and the Pharisees say, He will put those wretches to his miserable end, and let the vineyard out to other tenants or farmers who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And when the Pharisee, chief Pharisees, the chief priests, and the Pharisees heard the parable, they perceived it was speaking about them. And he was right; they were right. It's about them not being faithful to give God the glory, not being faithful. And let's say that he will let out the vineyards to other farmers. Think about that for a minute. Israel, the leaders of Israel were not faithful. And so Paul is saying and Jesus is saying that they're gonna rent it out to other farmers. Who are these other farmers? Listen to this. Paul says this to the Jews. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now here's the connection. Timothy, you're to be a hardworking farmer. Timothy was a Gentile. His mother was a Jew, but his father was a Gentile. What this is showing is that you need to be the new kind of farmer, Timothy. You need to be the hardworking farmer who has the first share of his crops. See, it's by grace that you work hard. Remember, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I worked harder than any of them. It's by grace that we are to work hard, we're to be motivated and strengthened by grace in order to work hard for Christ. You should be energized, not with how much you've done, but you should be energized with how much Christ has done for you. So now I want, I want to look at the distinctives between these three. Okay, I'm gonna highlight the differences between them and the similarities of them. The first metaphor illustrates a person to be pleased, who is Christ, right? That's the metaphor of the soldier, look at that one. It's, the, it's he looks to please the one who's enlisted him, right? The second metaphor illustrates a standard to be kept. The third metaphor, hard work to be done. Each metaphor also implies reward. The first is a pleased commander, The second is a crown. And if you notice, it's a crown of righteousness in chapter four, verse eight. That's the crown of righteousness. And the last is you receive the first share of the crops. They all have a condition required. The condition required is for the soldier, it's focus. You're to do what you do for Christ wholeheartedly, undistracted. The condition required for the athlete is to keep the standard. The condition for the farmer is hard work. The farmer, the athlete, and the soldier all need to be mentally tough, don't they? They need mental spiritual discipline. John MacArthur tells this story of, um, I think it was him, he was talking to a coach and they were getting ready for the Olympics and this coach pointed at a guy and and was telling him about different athletes on the field and he pointed at a guy and said, see that guy? He is probably one of the fastest men there will ever be, but he won't win. And then they pointed at at another guy, and this happened to be Bruce Jenner. pointed at Bruce Jenner and said, that guy is more mentally tough than anybody else on this field. He will win. Because it's this mental toughness that allows you to maintain as a faithful person soldier who pleases the one who enlists it's the mental toughness that's required in order to be an athlete that wins a crown and it's mental toughness that keeps the farmer doing it over and over and over and over again i mean think about it you're kind of a farmer are you still reading that same book how long have you been reading this book We've got to keep, just like, just like the soil, you've got to keep turning it over in your mind in order to keep it fresh. And that's what thinking does. And that's why Paul goes where he goes. Look at verse 7. Think over what I say. See, you need to notice here a couple things. Paul is saying, think over what I say. Do you see Paul recognizes its apostolic authority? Paul is telling Timothy, you need to think over what I say. You be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ. You need to think over my words. Paul understood his authority, and he's telling Timothy, you need to think over what I say, because in concert to what I say, the Lord gives understanding. See, Paul understood telling Timothy, you need to think this over, is crucial, because the Lord will give you understanding as you think it over. We need to think over these metaphors we need to think over everything that Paul says. And what can we expect? Well, Proverbs 2 says the same thing that this says. It says, seek understanding. How do you seek understanding in Proverbs 2? Like you work for money. You seek it like silver and gold, right? Think about how much, how much effort do you put in your job versus how much effort do you put in getting something out of the text? Really, what's, what, what are you working harder for? Are you working harder for the silver or are you working harder to understand this? Because here's the most, i just been shocked by this statement just yesterday and, and recently. Listen to what this says. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Everything. How can he make such a, How can he make such a a claim, right? How can he make such a claim as this? Here's the amazing thing. God knows everything that will ever happen to every single one of us. And he knows everything that you will ever do. So what has he done? He has made sure that everything you would ever do, everything you'd ever think, and everything that would ever be done to you, or for you, would not be separate from this word, right? Think about that. It's not that there's gonna be things that happen in your life that this doesn't cover, because this covers everything necessary. Well, are there aliens? Everything necessary. Is that necessary to know? Apparently not. Right? <laughs> Apparently not. Don't ask questions that this isn't willing to tell you about. A friend of mine the other day, he asked me, he says, Does Paul really need to tell us to think? And does he really need to tell us what to think? Yeah, right? I mean, if do you on the golf course, a friend of mine the other the other day, this was a few months back, maybe a year ago now. He's on the golf course, and he's explaining the gospel to this guy, and this guy says, okay, so wait a minute. You're a fallen man. You have a sinful nature, and your mind is fallen? My, My friend says, yeah. Well, then how do you know if this is true? If your mind is blind, and if you're sinful, how do you know the Bible's true, and how are you trusting in this if your mind is fallen? That's a good question, right? That guy was thinking. I don't believe this because I can discern it. I don't believe this is the word of God because I determine it's the word of God. I believe what it says and I believe what it says about me and I believe what it says about itself. So when someone asks you, what's your reason for believing the Bible? This is what you tell them because the Bible commands me to believe it and the Bible says what it is and it says God said and if I reject that, then I am saying I'm God. See, your authority does not rest in the reason of some man to be able to reason you to know that this is God's word. This does not contain the word of God. This does not contain the word of God. This room contains people. But is that all that's in this room? No. No. This does not contain the word of God. This is the word of God. Do you see the difference? That's why we believe it. We don't believe it because we're smart enough to figure it out. We believe it because it tells us about ourselves, And we believe it because the Holy Spirit has worked on us and has caused us our eyes to be opened and the blindness is removed. We need, and, and, and here's the thing, this is a both-and proposition, right? Think over what I say. Well, why? Because that's how you're going to get the understanding. You know, if you've been a Christian, if you've been saved more than 10 years, I'm not worried if you ever read your Bible again. You know the Bible doesn't command you to read it? The Bible commands you to think about it. Implies you've got to read it think about it, Right? But over and over and over and over and over, it says meditate, think, consider. Consider what I say and you will understand Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 4. So we, how many times you read this and you walk away and you really don't remember what you read, right? How many times have you read, you're reading along and you realize you were thinking about other things and you, didn't even, you were reading but it wasn't, it wasn't there, Right? See, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about reading. You're reading without thinking. Can you read without thinking? Yes. Right? Because you can read something and you'd be thinking about something else and you're just reading the words. And what I'm telling you is that what Paul wants us to do is to think about this. We need to think about this. That's what prepares us. That's what makes us mature. As you think about the word of God, as you think about how does this work out that I should be a soldier, that I should be an athlete, that I should be a hardworking farmer. How does that relate to my Christian life? And if you can't think of anything right now, you need to spend some time thinking about it. See, when I say this is a both and proposition, I mean that, for example, Could God save you apart from faith? He could, but he doesn't. Could God meet your needs apart from prayer? He could, and he does sometimes, but he expects you to what? Pray. He commands you to pray, right? He commands you to ask. There's means, right? We believe God's sovereign, right? He could do anything he wants to do, but he sovereignly has decreed means in order to get what he wants done. Does that make sense? No one on this planet is ever saved apart from the Word of God or somebody praying. Or both. Or the Word of God. Right? That's His means. You don't get saved. If somebody says, I'm saved, but I don't believe the Bible, they're not. Because this is the standard. God has determined to save people by the preaching of the Word and prayer. That's how He does it. That's His means. Right here it tells you that the way you will understand. The word of God, the way you will understand, get understanding in everything, and that's understanding in everything. It's everything you will ever need to understand. I mean, that's what he's telling Timothy. Obviously, Timothy isn't going to understand the molecular structure of a star. He doesn't need to know that. See, understanding in everything has the context of you being a human in life, living for God so that you can understand. So you can understand that there's things you don't understand and you can rest in the one who understands. Think over what I say. Listen to this. Faith is the key here because think about it, right? Think over what I say. If you just thought and you didn't depend on God, you're not, you're not believing, are you? If you just think, I want to think about the scripture and then you know what happens? You think a lot about it, you get all these neat ideas and you get really impressed with yourself. I, man, I've come up with some cool stuff. But see, it's this other side that, that, that God's got to give you the understanding and that you should be expecting that. Listen to this verse. You know this verse. By faith we understand. That's huge in this context. By faith you understand. That the world, that the universe was created by the word of God. That's why science talks about evolution. (laughs) No faith, no understanding. God grants you faith in order that you understand. I need to trust God in order to get understanding. So finally, grace personified. Look at verse eight. My wife asked me, well, how come you stop like, After a section and then start in the middle of a section. That's a good question. But I wanted to bring Christ into this more richly and Paul's doing it for me, so I wanted to end with him. He says, remember specifically, and that's the emphasis of that word, you specifically remember this person. That's what I want you to do. I want you to specifically remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. In this verse, just just as a note, you have the deity and the humanity of Christ, and you have the beginning and the end of his work. I mean, isn't that amazing? The offspring of David, right? Who is he? He's the reigning king, but he isn't dead. (laughs) Isn't that cool? Timothy, Jesus is still the king, the offspring of David, and he isn't dead, Timothy. He is risen. This is what you're to remember, You're to remember Christ. You're to remember that he died. You're to remember that he rose. You're to remember that he is the one who is king. And Timothy, you're to remember that Jesus Christ is the focus soldier who lays down his life. He is the sole sole reason Jesus came. He kept telling his disciples this. I only do what pleases my father, right? He's the good soldier. Jesus Christ is the crowned competitor. Well, how did Jesus compete? What rules did he stay by? Listen to this. He who knew no sin became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what happened? Therefore God highly exalted him, giving him the name that is above every name. There's Jesus as the one who kept the rules and died and was exalted by God for his obedience, even obedience to the point of death, even a death on a cross, a cursed death. And finally, Jesus was the hardworking farmer, the sower of the seed, right? Matthew 4, he sows the seed. he, He shares the gospel. He sows the gospel. But it's more than that. Think of this for a minute. Jesus taught that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus isn't just the sower, Jesus is the seed that falls into the ground and produces the crop his death right listen to this isaiah 53:10 when he makes an offering for guilt he shall see his fruit or his offspring or his seed see jesus christ is the seed that dies in order to bruise our life he is the good farmer he is the seed he is the gospel christ is the focused soldier and the victorious athlete Christ is what has been entrusted to us to pass on, right? And Christ is our strength to stand against the difficulties. And Christ is the one we are to depend on to give us understanding. And Christ gives us all this by grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son that has done everything for us everything is finished. Thank you. We depend on your spirit now that you would that you would lead us to love one another, to think about your word that you have been so faithful to preserve for us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here is that they would have a great affection for your word and who you are and to know you more intimately and personally. And that they would receive the understanding that you promise here. You promise us understanding. If we would just think over what Paul says. Thank you for your promise. In Jesus' name, amen.